the work of addressing injustice, writing and sharing stories, all of these things that I'm doing now, somebody else is doing them and somebody else will continue to do them. Now, what they won't do is say it the way that I do and I won't say it the way that they might. But I do think that it's important because we can say, yeah, like, if I don't know one else well, well, in my case, when I'm the things that I'm advocating for, I hope that somebody else does because there is a, a whole lot of work to get done. And it's going to take a whole lot more than just me and a few other people to get it done. We need lots of voices. And um, I hope that other people pick up the torch and, and keep going. Welcome to the Habit Podcast Conversations with Writers About Writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Faith Brooks is a writer, speaker, social worker, activist, and co-host of the Melanated Faith podcast. She has served as the Director of Programs and Innovation for Be the Bridge and is Director of Women's Empowerment for Legacy Collective. In all her work, Faith Brooks is crafting a communal space where black sisters can enjoy rest, tenderness, and softness. Her new book is Remember Me Now, A Journey Back to Myself and a Love Letter to Black Women. In this episode, she joined me to talk about code switching, making the reader feel seen, and the relationships between peacemaking, peacekeeping, and disruption. Faith Brooks, I am so glad to have you on the Habit Podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Um, Your new book is Remember Me Now. Help me out with a subtitle. I'm sorry. A Journey Back to Myself and a Love Letter to Black Women. Okay. I love that title. Remember me now. Um, talk to me about that. Where, t- tell me about that that title. How why you chose to give your book that title? So my book, Remember Me Now, was really inspired by um, you know the events that I saw happening with Brianna Taylor and um, and also just things that were going on in 2020. And as a black woman, when I saw what happened to Brianna, it really hit me hard. And before Brianna, there was Sandra Bland, there was a Tatiana Jefferson and many other black women. And in this time in particular, though, with Brianna, I saw the way that people were remembering her and honoring her after she had already passed. And I started to think to myself, you know, what would it be like? What would it feel like if people were actually remembering us now, right mm-hmm. now, while we're yeah. living and not just when we're gone? And so that's what inspired me to have the title of the book be Remember Me Now. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's really important to remember Black women right now, right here as we are, and not just when we're gone. So I, yeah. I wanted to put that message forth right through the title. Yeah. Yeah, you talk about the or the the myth of the strong back black woman. I, I think is that that's the way you put it, right? The myth of mm-hmm. obviously black women uh, are very strong, and, and, and um, what's what's wrong with that myth? Why why is that why is that mythology possibly dangerous? I think the reason, you know, black women we are we are strong and resilient, and and a lot of other things, but at the same time. Um, it also kind of paints this picture that Black women can and should endure great hardship and they can mm-hmm. do it easily. Mm-hmm. We see this myth at play when we're looking at um, Black um, women giving birth to children and seeing the um, 
you know, infant and mortality rate, the mortality rate for black women giving birth, how dangerous it is. Mm -hmm. And um, even just the the genesis of, you know, how we look at women's bodies and women's health. It was said that, you know, black women can endure more pain. They were experimented on without medication, mm -hmm. without any type of, um, you know, help or relief. And so, you know, there's this narrative that, Black women are strong. They can take it. They can take the pain. And the truth is, is we're also human beings and we deserve rest. We deserve the same thoughtfulness and consideration as others. And that's really what made me want to talk more about this and address that myth. Yeah. Yeah. The the idea that, that somehow Black women uh, can and should absorb more than the rest of us. Yeah. So dangerous, yeah. Um, early in your book, you say, I never have to beg my black sisters to see me because they know what it feels like to be unseen. Um, I want to talk about that. You know, writing a book is one way to be seen, right? Mm -hmm. in, in writing this book, as I, as I read your book, I felt like, oh, I can see faith. But also... You you were very consciously writing a book that would make readers feel seen, especially readers who are black women. Mm -hmm. um, that's not a question I realize, but but the uh, the I'd love to hear more about about this idea of um, of as you said, your black sisters. You don't have to ask them to see you because they know what it's like to be unseen and and. And you're working to to make people feel seen. So I, I suspect that, you have more to say about that. Yeah. I, you know, I grew up in a variety of different spaces and some predominantly white spaces. And I had to explain everything. And yeah. as I got older, it wasn't that I like, you know, I knew that I could still explain things. It's just that I got tired of it. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and I was like, you know, it would be nice to have sisterhood and community with people where I did not have to explain myself, where I could say, this is what I experienced at this point in time. And my friends would say, yes, I get yeah. that. Yeah. It didn't mean that I didn't have friendships with my white girlfriends or things like that anymore, but there was a certain level of comfort, of security and safety and being able to speak my mind freely mm -hmm. in a way where I knew I was going to be heard. I wouldn't be judged. And um, yeah, where I just, where I knew that there was like a safe and ease like a, just a space where I could just kind of lay my head down and rest without judgment. That was really special. I needed that. And I got that from my black sisters. How, how specifically did you sort of cultivate that kind of community? Um, I mean, I was really intentional about it. Yeah. I, I met different people at different phases in my life and I, um, you know, we, some of us just formed friendships. Sometimes it was like a friend of a friend I met or somebody mm -hmm. I met in an event and we just kind of kept up with each other and yeah. built a friendship. And it was something that I was intentional about cultivating. And now, you know, I have so many great friends that are also writers and professionals mm -hmm. where we can relate to each other in this space specifically. And 
friends in different kinds of professions, but it took time to form those bonds. But it was something that I did very intentionally over the course of, um, yeah, my life, especially in my later 20s. Yeah. All right. Now I'm self-conscious about the next question because you'd said you're tired of explaining things. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, You talk about code switching. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a term that some of my some, some of our listeners may not be familiar with. So, could you explain the idea of code switching? Um, because you I, obviously you had to become an expert in that, given the spaces that you grew up in. Um, right. And then I've got some follow up questions about code switching. Yeah. So, you know, code switching is. I'm just going to give you kind of like a my layman's term definition, you can look up the articles and the scholarly (laughs) things on it. But essentially, it's, you know, it's saying things and talking in a way that you know, is, um, is palatable, I'm going to say that in one way Mm -hmm. is palatable. Also, um, you're not typically using like, slang or AAVE, which is African American Vernacular English, and um, and that is a um, you know our own kind of way of talking as Black folks. And there's lots of articles and things you can learn about AAVE. But you're essentially knowing how to speak and navigate and and talk in work settings, other settings where um, it's easily accepted, you know, mm-hmm. it's, mm-hmm. and um, it's like a general way of speaking and you're just speaking in that way only. You're not adding right. anything extra or maybe the more casual way you're going to speak at home or your yeah. friends, things like that. So that's the switching at, at home. You speak one way or among your black friends, you speak one way and then you get in another environment. You speak another way. That's the yeah. essence of code switching. Yeah, that's in so, essence. And not everybody does it. You know, like there's some friends that I have, they're like, I'm tired of it. I'm mm-hmm. just going to, you know, I'm not code switching at all. Mm-hmm. And this is just all that I'm doing. And that's it. And I think that's okay, too. Yeah. So you are in this moment in the middle of a code switch? Um, I would we're... say in ways, but not like fully in particular. But I would say mostly in the ways that for me right now, code switching is more so my brain understands what kind of audience I'm speaking to. Uh Um, And so therefore I'll explain things or phrase things differently than I probably would if I was speaking to um, an audience that was like predominantly black. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So has, has your uh, lifetime of code switching has that affected the way you write? Has that shaped you as a as a writer in any way? Um, is, it, is it relevant to that? I don't know how relevant it is fully to my writing, but I do know how to write for a predominantly um, Black readership, which is what mm-hmm. I did in my book. And I also know how to write for a diverse mixed audience and predominantly white audience. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of I've, I've just kind of learned like, okay, um, these are the ways that I can say things or phrase things Mm -hmm. and that I know people will hear me of different, you know, backgrounds. Yeah. Um, okay. That's, that's fair. Do you ever write fiction? 
No, I haven't. I love to dabble in it, but I haven't no. tried my hand at it yet. I've just I've wondered before if um, if black riders have a again because of the code switching um, have a a more natural facility with with dialogue, for instance, with with speaking like different characters in, mm-hmm. in the same scene. I've, I've uh, I'd be curious to to know more about that from a fiction writer. You know. Yeah, I could. I would imagine so, but well, I would think so. I don't know, yeah. <laughs> but I would imagine so. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, you've you've had to be attentive, and you know, attentive to the way different people talk in ways uh-huh. that maybe somebody from a from a, a white background isn't required to be quite as attentive. Should yeah. be just as, as attentive, but you know, can get away with being inattentive, right? For sure, if that's fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um. All right. Okay. You draw a distinction in your in your book between peacemaking, peacekeeping, and then there's just disruption. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe in college you kind of decided maybe I'm not going to be a peacekeeper mm-hmm. so much anymore. Maybe yeah. more of a. Uh, am I getting this right? You want to be more yeah. of a peacemaker rather than a peacekeeper. Right. But then disruption works in there somehow that doesn't that doesn't oh, feel yeah. like peacemaking, doesn't feel like it, doesn't look like it at first, perhaps. Uh, can you draw those distinctions for me? Well, I feel like peacekeeping is just kind of like, what can I do to keep things the way that they are? I'm not really challenging anything. I'm just trying to let's just all get along. Yeah. You know, let's just keep it, keep it easy. And then Mm -hmm. peacemaking, I feel like, is more action-oriented. What can I do to bring peace to a situation that um, might be fragmented or broken? And then I think that there are times where you need to disrupt, which means that, hey, there's a situation where keeping the peace is not going to work. And people are not ready for peacemaking, like going to the next step of actually fixing the things that are broken. So we need to disrupt things. We need to address things. We need to call things out and speak very directly mm-hmm. to the issues at hand. So then we can move into peacemaking. Yeah. And I had to, you know, be okay with the fact that there was going to be times where being um, a disruptor was was needed and mm-hmm. and reminded that, you know, disruptors were a big part of the civil rights movement which did help to bring about change. Yeah. Is, do you draw a distinction between being disruptive and being divisive? You know, I, I do. I mean, I haven't like written like a formal distinction, but, um, but I do think that it's kind of a fine line because it depends on who's defining it. Sure. Um, and a lot of the spaces I grew up in, especially um, like evangelical spaces, just talking about race and, you know, um, sometimes even just saying Black Lives Matter or something like that was considered mm-hmm. divisive, which I don't think it's divisive at all. But no. um, for some people, that was like, that's you're being really divisive and, you know, all these things. So with that being said, I think personally, I have seen disruption Um, in the ways that 
they did in the civil rights movement, like nonviolent action, um, but also very bold actions where you just can't look away from what's happening. It's right there in your face. What are you going to do about it? And when it comes to things being divisive, um, I think of those things as being maybe like something that's like harmful to other people. Mm -hmm. Um, and or behaving in the in you know in a way that's really similar to like the mistreatment you're experiencing like i don't want to give back into the world what somebody's giving me you know i don't want to give back hatred mm -hmm. um i want to address injustices i want to address those those big issues that have happened and why we have inequality but i don't want to spew hatred back back to to anyone else you said that it sort of depends on who's de defining when you know, what's divisive and what's sure, yeah. disrupt disruptive. Yeah. Uh, the um, what's my question here? Um, the uh, why am I having a hard time formulating this question? I mean, I, I, I guess I just want to hear you more. Hear you say more about. I mean, I feel like that the language to call actions divisive in many cases all, all it really means is it makes me feel uncomfortable that's not the same thing as being divisive right i mean there, there are people for whom you may feel discomfort uncomfortable therefore you're being divisive mm -hmm. and then i wonder that if you know say you, you say it depends on who's defining it is that person even defining it or are they just using that as a sort of weaponized term oh for sure i mean uh, the ways that i've experienced it it's been more of a weaponized term kind of like you know almost makes me feel kind of like a keep quiet a little bit you know uh -huh. um yeah and, that's right a term that that it makes that it is another way of saying be quiet i'm sorry i just interrupted you like a person who's telling you to be quiet so I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay <laughs> yeah i i think i think it's that that's like the essence of it um what i hear when somebody's like you're being divisive because typically the things that people are saying i'm being divisive on is if i'm addressing you know um an injustice somebody mm -hmm. was you know unjustly killed someone was um discriminated against i'm calling out you know the harmful ways that you know abuses um have affected societies have affected communities and we need to address those we cannot ignore those things and you know people sometimes don't like that or they're like hey i love what you're doing but this just feels divisive and it's like mm -hmm. divisive to who you know mm -hmm. <laughs> because mm -hmm. a lot of people that have experienced these things it's just actually having the courage to say hey this is what i've experienced this has been harmful and I want to name it, you know, I want to speak to that. I want to tell you, you know, why this mm -hmm. has been harmful to me. So I, I think it's important to name what you've experienced. I think it's important to name your pain, hurt, you know, to address the issues, to address racism. Like mm -hmm. all these things are very important to name because if you don't name it, then you're just, you know, going along with it. We all know there's a problem, but we're still not wanting to talk about it because it's what taboo, yeah. but millions of lives are affected by it. Yeah. And speaking the truth and saying these things is so important. 
And um, I just feel really passionate about it because I think our stories are important. And that's why I think we should be um, remembered. That's why I think our lives are valuable. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's worth asking if, if, if someone says, you know, you're being divisive. One question is what kind of cohesion are you, what, what is, what's the nature of the cohesion that you're protecting? Yeah. And some cohesion is, is great and we right. shouldn't divide that. <laughs> but if, but if I'm trying to protect a cohesion that is not fair, that's not just, um, I, I just think that's a, maybe, maybe that's the, maybe that's a question, you know, we can all ask when people are, are talking about divisiveness. Right. Is what kind of cohesion are we are we am I what kind of cohesion do I feel like I'm advocating for when I say you're being divisive? Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and if I'm willing to accept that, you know, and say it out loud that this co- this is the cohesion I I'm going for, then all right, we can have that conversation. All right. Yeah. It doesn't feel like a, a weaponization of, of the term divisive. Right. And we can still disagree, I suppose, on what kind of cohesion is, is the right kind of cohesion. But For sure. Everybody's free to, the, you know, they have their opinions. So, <laughs> uh, um, uh, we, I, I briefly alluded to the, the idea that each of your chapters ends with a letter to black women. Um, and so it's almost like you're shifting from first person to second person in each chapter, right? Mm-hmm. The main part of the chapter, it's I, here's what happened to me, Faith Brooks. And then for a little while at the end, we shift to second person and you say, now, dear sister, here's some things I want you to know. Yeah. Um, how'd you settle on that format? Well, I love writing letters and I've just loved, you know, writing since I was little. Mm-hmm. When I was six years old, um, or around that age, I was young. Uh, my family lived in uh, Grand Prairie, Texas, and um, they. <laughs> I used to write this little newspaper, and my mom went to Kiko, Kinko's, and um, she would make copies of it for me. And I would go out in front of Kroger, and I would sell my newspaper. Really. For 10 cents. Okay. Um, and I would sell it to people and um, they would buy it, you know, and I just went out week after week and it just really helped me build my confidence as a writer. <laughs> but one thing that I really loved to do was write letters. And um, I would, I had a blog long ago called Lyrics and Letters, and I just loved writing. I mean, any form of writing, Zanga, MySpace, whatever, I had it. Uh-huh. And, um, when I thought about this book and I thought about what I wanted to say, I was like, you know what? It would be so cool to write letters. I've always felt like I expressed myself so well in letters. It's mm-hmm. so easy for me to write letters. And so I thought it would be cool to write a letter to my sister. And I think it kind of started off as like, I want to write a letter here and there. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the whole book had letters before, the, you know, yeah. it was over. And um it was so much fun to do. I I thought of conversations I'd had with different friends that inspired my letters. I thought mm. of different people as I wrote, but it was really important to me to talk to my sisters because I felt like I, you know, I'm not who I am without community. Community mm. is so important. And my hope was that people would read my book and maybe see pieces of themselves in it. Um, And it would also give them hope. And I knew that 
people um, who weren't black women were going to read the book. And I hoped that they would. I hoped everybody would read the book, to be honest with you. Yeah. But I hoped that my my sentiments and letters and things that I wrote would help people to have a little bit of an inside look into the beauty of sisterhood within mm-hmm. our community and um, maybe even grab some inspiration for themselves, too. Yeah. Were the letters easier to write than the than the autobiography part? Yeah. The letters were easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you have you heard the story of uh, you know, Tom Wolfe? back in the early 70s, wrote a, a now I can't remember which of his well-known articles it was, uh, but he'd gone out to L.A. to, went to a bunch of car shows. It was, it was an article about cars, and he gathered up all kinds of information, and then he just couldn't write it. And he told his his editor, I can't write this. I can't write this. And, you know, the editor already invested money in his hotel and his, in his you know, airplane, all this kind of stuff. And he said, well, I tell you what, why don't you just kind of put all the stuff together, put it in a letter to me, and and then I'll hand it over to somebody else. And so he starts writing the letter and, and the, in one night writes this 50,000-word thing wow. that the editor just, I say 50, it might have been 25,000. It was a long piece of writing. And the editors just took off the dear editor part at the top, and that was the that was the article. You know, that he spent months perseverating over, couldn't write, but then when it was a letter, he could do it. Yeah. <laughs> So That's really I cool. That. I hadn't heard that story before, but I relate to that completely. <laughs> yeah, because you, when you, when I'm writing this for a person instead of for the public, it's, yeah. there's something different. Yeah, and I and I was writing, although it was for everybody, I was writing for one person, so it yeah. was really easy to say, "This is for you." Yeah, and mm-hmm. I'd have to think about the broader. That's right. <laughs> so that was yeah. nice. <laughs> And in in so many cases, the the specific is the only door to the universal. Right? You you can't. Um, the more specific you get, the more it makes sense to a broader number of people. Right? Right. A Hallmark card is pretty general, um, and it, in a certain de- to a certain degree, it speaks to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's only a limit to how much it can say. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> you just said, "I'm not who I am without community." Um, which your your story very much demonstrates. But also, I, I want to talk about another moment in your book um, that felt to me like a really important moment, and that is um, a a friend. Of, uh, I got the impression maybe it was a family friend uh, in a very traumatic moment for you. Um, asked you the question, "Who are you to yourself?" Mm-hmm. You know, that you, I'm a daughter, I'm a friend, I'm a sister, but who are you to you? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you had already done a lot of writing, a lot of advocacy, speaking up for other people and yourself as well. Um, but I'm wondering when you were forced to wrestle with that question, who are you to yourself? Did that change anything about your voice as a writer and your as a person? Yeah, I think that when I began the journey of processing, who am I to myself? It was a really powerful journey because I had spent so much time helping other people, mm-hmm. 
you know, seeing, uh, you know, helping make other people's dreams come to life. And I did all of this work for everybody else. And it was so easy for me to do it. But when it came to myself, it was a lot harder. And that question really shifted things for me in my life because I learned that I needed to be attentive to myself. I needed to be attentive to my needs and I needed to be attentive to my own desires. And in more ways than one, I had not been attentive. You know, I had been, um, I had been really, really like so consumed by showing up for everyone else, by being a good daughter and a good sister and a good friend that I, I didn't spend much time asking like, Faith, what do you want? Not what does everybody want? Or what do people want from you? Mm-hmm. But what do you want yourself? And asking myself, giving myself permission to say, like, this is what I want. Mm-hmm. Or this is what I need right now. That was so freeing. And it's a question I ask myself often. What do I need right now? What do I want right now? And... I feel like in terms of my writing, it um, gave me space to write freely. I, um, when I first started writing my book, I wasn't sure if I was only going to write to Black women. I didn't know how I was going to write it. And I think one part of asking myself, like, Faith, what do I, what do I want? What do I desire right now? Was saying, who did I want to write to? Yeah. And I said to myself, I want to write to Black women. And I felt like that changed everything about the trajectory of the way I was writing the book. And um, and it just helped me bring out the stories that helped things to really come alive yeah. because I had to say to myself, okay, I know what I want and I know who I'm writing to. And I want to write the book that I, I wish I could have read when I was younger. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. When you speak of writing to and for Black women in this book, mm. <clears throat> where does a reader like me fit in? If you don't mind my asking. I mean, it's like, I'm sure I'm well. I mean, I, I felt welcome to read it, right? Your, yeah. your publicist sent it to me, so I figured it was okay for me to read it. Um, but I'm full disclosure, I'm a, I'm a white man. I don't know if you had picked up on that, Faith. Uh, (laughs) I see color, so I saw you. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, And um, so. You know, I think where where I sit with it is um, when it's a book by a white author, nobody has asked whether Black people could read it or not. Mm -hmm. It really hasn't been until I've written this book and I say I've written it for Black women that people ask me, can I read it? Yeah. And I say, yeah, but for all these other books, nobody asks, can mm. can Black people read this book? Mm-hmm. Nobody asks, can Black people read Atomic Habits mm-hmm. or any of these other really mainstream books or Eat, Pray, Love? Mm-hmm. Like, people aren't asking those questions. And... um and I think that it's it's telling that we have more work to do. Mm-hmm. Anybody can read any book. You're welcome to. When we write books as authors, I feel like we're opening ourselves and opening people up to read about our world. 
And mm-hmm. I don't know any author who's like, I don't want any of these people from that group to read sure. my book. We want everybody to read our books. And so um, I love that you read the book. I, I love, honestly, I had one of my friends, it's a white guy. He, he messaged me and he said, man, you write good. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm captivated by your writing and I'm enjoying this book. Um, and he's like, I know it's not for me, but you know, and I was like, well, I'm glad you're enjoying it. Um, and, uh, you know, the guy who, um, was that my audio engineer for the book, um, when I was reading the audio book, it's a white guy as well. And he's like, I was just so moved. Like, this is so great. And, um, and I just really feel like this book is for whoever wants to engage with it. It doesn't matter who you are, because you're going to learn something. And we learn more about each other when we make space and share in each other's stories. Well, I loved the opportunity to eavesdrop on a conversation between Black women. You know? I love it. Yeah. And I felt like you were giving me access to some things I didn't otherwise have access to. And I was very grateful for that. Yeah. Um, and that's why I read, right? That, to, to get when authors can give something to me that I can't get for myself. Yeah. I love that. So, um, do you, I mean, is it, was it an inappropriate question for me to ask? You know? No, no. I just feel like I felt safe enough with you to give you my very bluntest answer. Okay. Um, which was that I think everybody should read it, but you're the first person I've told that to. Lots of people have asked me, can I read it? I'm like, yeah, you can read it. And I give them a real, Sweet answer, but we <laughs> talked about code switching, so I decided not to code switch. Okay, good. And Thank just you. tell you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, oh, here's something else I, I wanted to ask about. <clears throat> um, at one point, you say, uh, I know I'm not the only one called to speak up and speak out. Um, I know that if I don't do it, Someone else will, which that was a sentence that didn't quite go where I thought it was going to go. I also know that my voice is unique and I've been positioned to share my truth for a reason and a purpose. Now, what I often hear people say is things like, well, if I don't say it, nobody's going to say it or who will. And you're saying, no, if I don't say it, somebody's still going to say it. Mm-hmm. And yet you push and, and, and you wrote knowing both on social media and in this book you write things that could cause people to say mean things to you. Yeah. To call you divisive, to Mm -hmm. otherwise hurt your feelings. Um, And you decided to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, Not because you felt you were the only person who was capable of addressing inequities and injustices. Mm -hmm. Um. As you said, you have a unique voice. Anyway, tell me about that. Why Why did you say, you know what? People going to hurt my feelings. I'm going to do this anyway. You know, I just feel like it's a part of my purpose in life. And I think because it's a part of my purpose, I have the ability to withstand the negatives that come along with it. I'm human, so it doesn't mean it doesn't impact me or affect me. But it does mean that I'm aware that this is going to happen. You know, Mm -hmm. I've had people say lots of nasty things to me online Mm -hmm. and be rude, cuss me out, tell me to go back to Africa, all kind of things. But I still very, still feel very um, 
empowered and still find a lot of deep purpose in writing and educating and addressing race and racism and also empowering black women. I still feel really, you know, um, yeah, I have a lot of energy around those things, still doing those things in spite of the obstacles. But at the same time, you know, my ancestors did this before I did. Mm-hmm. And um, they did the work. The work of addressing injustice, um, writing and sharing stories, all of these things that I'm doing now, somebody else is doing them and somebody else will continue to do them. Now, what they won't do is say it the way that I do and I won't say it the way that they might. But I do think that it's important because we can say, yeah, like if I don't know one else well, well, in my case, when I'm the things that I'm advocating for, I hope that somebody else does because there's a a whole lot of work to get done. And it's going to take a whole lot more than just me and a few other people to get it done. We need lots of voices. And um, I hope that other people pick up the torch and and keep going. Yeah. And when it comes to telling Faith Brooks' story, it actually is true that if you don't tell it, nobody else will. That's right. Yeah. My specific yeah. story, for sure. Yeah. All right. I always end with the question, who are the writers who make you want to write? Yeah. So and how would you answer that question? I would say there's, um, I have a kind of like a top two, but there's there's Renita Weems, who I love. She's a, a theologian and she just uh-huh. writes really beautiful work. I just, I'm really inspired by her. And also Roxanne Gay. Uh I love Roxanne's words and um, her book Hunger was just like so good. I mean, I was so moved reading that book. And um, Amani Perry has a great book called Breathe. It's really beautiful as well. So Uh those are some, those are some three, three different authors. I I really enjoyed their work. They make you want to do what you do. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, Faith Brooks, so thank you so much. It's been such a such a pleasure to talk to you and in in uh I'm so thankful for your voice and thank you for using it. Thank you so much. This podcast is brought to you by the Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.